Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 264A, Rebel Queen 2 Proclamation. The first of our daily instalments of the struggle for the throne of England in 1553. On the website, by the way, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, you will find a transcript of each episode in the rather unlikely event you want to read as well as listening. And there's a Lady Jane Grey page where you can see the schedule and links to polls and quizzes when the time comes. So hop along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk if such is your pleasure. Right. It's the morning of the 7th of July, 1553, and a 21-year-old Robert Dudley, son of the great and powerful Duke of Northumberland, rides with a group of horsemen furiously through the vast deer park at Hunsdon House, 30 miles or so north of Westminster. There is an edge, an edge of desperation in the set of these exhausted men as they clatter up to the magnificent 15th-century house. They have been sent by the Duke to bring the Princess Mary to the council immediately. But Dudley's worried, because his father is worried. The council had written to Mary back on the 4th of July. She should have come by now. Why had she not come? No one yet knew that Edward already lay cold and dead, and that Jane Grey was to be made Queen of England. The only person who could really stop that from happening was the Princess Mary. She could not be allowed to stay at liberty under no circumstances. Dudley throws himself from his horse in front of the great doors of the house and he batters his way in, pushing his way through rooms with increasing desperation and panic. As the shocked servants stumble into the hall, try to stop him, the truth becomes clear. The Tudor bird has flown. Now that, gentle listeners, is my attempt to write drama. Obviously, I have to point out that we have no historical record of whether Dudley threw himself from the horse at all. Maybe he paused for a while ordered a servant to help, had a nice cup of tea and a bun. Who knows? Well, not tea, obviously. Also, I suspect the door would have been bolted, so he'd probably have had to knock. Tusk, and I say again, tusk. 
That's the trouble with these pesky flybernite dramatists, is it not? But the point is that Mary had indeed flown. In fact, as news of Edward's illness had emerged, Mary had indeed moved to Hunsdon in order to be closer to London, and she may even have left Hunsdon to start the journey to London to see her brother. But a breathless message had arrived just in the nick of time. Probably it was the Imperial Ambassador Shiver who spilt the beans to her. The real brains of the Imperial faction was Simon Renard, and he was pessimistic for Mary's chances of success, though, writing, The actual possession of power is a matter of great importance, especially amongst barbarians like the English. Just in case you thought xenophobia was an English thing, by the way. Anyway, Renard, he thought that Northumberland had it all taped, all covered. And you know what? He tears an elephant in the presence chamber. Why on earth did Northumberland not make sure that he had Mary in his grasp before Edward died? We know that John Gates, his supporter in the Privy Chamber, was overheard making that very point to him. But, sir, will you suffer Lady Mary escape and not secure her person? And yet Northumberland had been so confident when he spoke just a few days ago to Nouai, the French ambassador. He clearly thought he had it all covered. So what had gone wrong? Had Northumberland become Northumberland? And maybe here is the real significance of the occasion we dramatised a few weeks ago when Mary considered flight in 1550 and made such a pitiful hash of it. Northumberland underestimated his opponent. He thought she'd crumble. He thought she'd lay down and die. Although in his defence it is also worth noting that just arresting the Princess Mary, still officially and outwardly being treated as Edward's heir and confidently accepted by the world as the next queen-to-be, would not have been so simple. He'd probably have had to take out Mary's supporters too, and that would have been very messy, even if it were possible. So Northumberland may have felt that the devise and the support of the council would be sufficient, the actual possession of power that Renard mentioned. Northumberland may also have had some provision made for a war chest if trouble did occur. So, he thought stealth, drawing Mary to London, to be the best approach. The next few days would tell him if he was to suffer for his miscalculation. Incidentally, the Princess Elizabeth had also been ordered to London and she said she'd rather not thank you if you don't mind. She was feeling a little peaky, which is very Elizabeth. When the council heard the news, brought post-haste back from Hunsdon by Robert Dudley, a letter was sent out the following day on the 8th of July immediately to all the Lord's Lieutenant throughout England, the men who made up the military arm of the sheriffs, that... She hath suddenly, without knowledge, given either to us here or to the country there, taken her journey towards Norfolk. There was then a shameless appeal to patriotism, for true and mere Englishmen keep our country to be English, without putting our heads under Spaniards and Fleming's girdles as their slaves and vassals. Right from the start, Mary was being associated with foreign powers, the Empire in particular, and given her constant correspondence and reference to the Emperor and his ambassadors, they're not necessarily wrong. The assumption seems to be that Mary was now running for the coast to escape to the Empire and then launch an invasion from abroad. And so, the hunt for Red Mary was on. There were still a few hours before this storm would fall on Jane, who was still with her parents at their manor at Chelsea, recovering from illness while her husband Guildford was with the Duchess and Duke of Northumberland at Durham House on the Strand in London. So for Jane, a few more hours of blissful ignorance. But the council wanted things kept secret, just for a while longer, to tie up as many loose ends as possible. 
On the 8th of July, therefore, the Lord Mayor of London and 31 other dignitaries and aldermen of London were brought before the council. There, they were told that the king was dead, and they were presented with his will and devise for the succession which they were required to sign. All solemnly swore an oath to keep it quiet. Well, one of them may have giggled a little, I can't be sure, and if not one of them rushed home and told the wife, then there were no true husband. But, you know, in principle, keep it quiet. Then all the officers of the Tower were also told about Edward's death and about Jane, and sworn in to protect Jane as their queen. Now, outside in the city of London, the place was swarming with men wearing the livery of the Dukes of Northumberland and Jane's father, Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk. Henry VII would be turning in his grave at all the livery and maintenance going on. 500 men for Northumberland, 300 for Suffolk, by some reports. Rumours, whispers, spread around the city from furrowed brow to furrowed brow. Something was afoot. Something was not right. For Jane at Chelsea... It seems to be that the 16-year-old had convinced herself that the greatest challenge ahead of her was the one faced by so many women, and indeed men of the age, learning to live with someone they knew only slightly and had not chosen to marry. It seems that she had convinced herself that when Jane Guilford, the Duchess of Northumberland, had told her that she had to be ready to rush to the tower because she'd be made heir to the throne, that the Duchess was just messing with her. Probably, Jane thought, the Duchess used it as an excuse because she wanted Jane to go back to Durham House and live with her husband, Guilford Dudley. You can understand. Imagine being told such a thing. Seems potty. Everyone knew Mary was Edward's heir. So what was to follow hit her very hard indeed. It was a Sunday, the 9th of July, at Chelsea. As a devoted evangelical, Jane would have been in the rhythm of Sunday, though maybe she also walked through its gardens, admiring the knot gardens and the orchards for which it was famous, or remembered her happy time there with Catherine Parr, who'd been so kind to her. But then she was told that Mary Sidney had arrived and had news for her. Mary Sidney was Northumberland's daughter, married to the Henry Sidney who'd been at the side of the king when he died, so certainly she was in the know. Incidentally, there can be little doubt also that Jane's husband, Guilford, was already in the know. Anyway, Mary gave a worrying but oblique message to Jane, She must come to the great house at Sion, west of London, to receive that which had been ordered by the king. Sion is about eight miles away from Chelsea as the crow flies, and a good deal longer as the river flows, the River Thames being a lazy, meandering kind of beast around those parts, which is relevant because it would have been by boat that Jane and Mary were taken to their strange destination, no doubt Jane trying to pump Mary for information. But when she stepped ashore, she found there was no one there to greet her apart from the servants. And so she went up to the house and she waited. Golly, she must have had a heavy pit of dread in her stomach. As she walked up and down the long gallery of Sion House, overlooking the river, she must surely have thought back to that conversation with the Duchess of Northumberland and wondered and worried. Eventually, the sight of a richly decorated barge on the river, hustle and bustle, many grand lords and ladies, She waited until the noises came outside of the long gallery and then in, and she was greeted by Northumberland, by councillors, the most powerful men of the realm, the Marquis of Northampton, the Earl of Huntingdon, the Earl of Arundel, now rehabilitated after his attempt at a Catholic coup, and the power broker, William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. They did what blokes do when faced with a difficult conversation. They talked about something else. 
probably the weather, maybe the footy, until eventually they did what they should have done from the start and asked the women to join them. Francis, Jane's mother, the Duchess of Northumberland and others. Finally, Northumberland screwed up the courage to tell her the news. Edward the King was dead. Edward the King had made her, Lady Jane Grey, his heir. Lady Jane Grey was queen. Jane's mind resisted the news. And then all the councillors knelt in front of her to Jane as heir of straight descent and offered her their loyalty. There were others coming into the room now. Jane's father, the Duke of Suffolk, was there. But the biggest thing in the room was a deathly ush. There were kneeling lords, a new queen, and all that the assembled magnificence could rustle up was an embarrassed silence. So Northumberland again took the English way, and he babbled. And eventually, the truth battered down the mental walls of Jane's denial and broke inside. Jane collapsed. She fell to the floor in a torrent of tears. She cried out in one more effort to have this cup of poison taken from her lips that she neither desired nor had asked for. The crown is not my right. It pleases me not. The Lady Mary is the rightful heir. Your grace does wrong to yourself and to your house, replied the duke. Jane's mum and dad were now at her side on the floor, telling their daughter this was her duty. And eventually Jane had to give way. She had to accept her destiny to be Queen of England. As she later wrote, Declaring to them my insufficiency, I greatly bewailed myself for the death of so noble a prince, and at the same time turned myself to God, humbly praying and beseeching to him. And if what was given to me was rightfully and lawfully mine, his divine majesty would grant me such grace and spirit that I might govern it to his glory and service and to the advantage of his realm. The moment broken, things may be relaxed a bit. Jane may be permitted herself to dream. Everyone let off steam with a great banquet and all tried to hope that the worst bit was over. As if. The next day, 10th of July, was to be the big one where the truth was revealed officially to the world, the wheels were to be put in motion, the plan that the council had been working on since the king's death executed. Jane would have seen Northumberland and most of the councillors leave for London early in the morning, and she was to follow later. While she waited at Zion, the royal heralds were proclaiming the news around London. Edward was dead. Jane was rightful Queen of England. They declared... Lady Mary, unfitted for the crown, as also the Lady Elizabeth. Both ladies were declared to be bastards. It was stated that Lady Mary might also marry a foreigner and thus stir up trouble in the kingdom, and also that she was of the old religion. She might seek to introduce popery. The heralds were greeted with disbelief. The heralds were greeted with confusion. Everyone knew that the daughter of good King Hal was the rightful heir. Princess Mary was to be queen. Who was this Lady Jane Grey when she was at home? Rumours circulated that Edward had been poisoned. And Northumberland. The finger was pointed at Northumberland. Men in his livery were everywhere. London hated the Duke. At three o'clock in the afternoon then, a procession of magnificent barges took Queen Jane and a gilded entourage down the Thames to the Tower, to the main entrance, the Lion Gate. Jane was dressed in green velvet, embroidered with gold, with large sleeves and a long train. Behind her carrying the train was her mother. Her headdress was white, heavily jewelled, and over her head was carried the cloth of estate. 
Now at last beside her was her husband Guildford, tall, blonde, dressed in white and gold, closely attentive to his wife the Queen. The crowd was all about as she landed at the tower, but there were no cheers for Queen Jane, except the archers, and for the guns that fired salute as she arrived. As Schiffer and Renard drank in the silence, they rubbed their hands with glee. And then one man even yelled defiance for Queen Mary. His name was Gilbert Potter. Gilbert Potter was dragged away. Gilbert Potter had his ears cut off at the root for treachery. At the gate of the tower, Jane was greeted by Northumberland, and the silence thundered in their ears. Inside the gate he drew her, and everything would have been a bit more comfortable as the silence was shut outside. Inside the tower, a presence chamber had been rustled up with a cloth of estate set over a royal chair. Jane was decked out in finery that would have made evangelicals like Roger Ascham come out in a hot flush. In particular, a heavily jewelled chin cloth extended over the chin in a style allowed only for nobility. When the crown was brought forward, Jane tried to refuse it. She was assured they were making another one anyway for her husband. They got the wrong idea of why she was refusing it. And then the penny dropped. If she, Jane, was to be queen, then he, Guildford, was to be king. Well, hang on a moment. Was this the point of the whole thing? Was this a Dudley family stitch-up? Jane might read Plato and have a brain the size of a small orbital satellite, but Plato does not necessarily make you streetwise so it appears that this possibility had not yet occurred to Jane. There followed a fierce discussion between husband and wife, what Jane called a reasoning of many things with my husband, which is as nice a euphemism as you could wish for. Next time you have a domestic, if you have such things, you might describe it as a reasoning of many things. Another penny had just dropped for Jane. Guildford knew. Guildford had known all along, and Guildford hadn't told her his wife. That hurt. The upshot of the reasoning of many things was that Guildford agreed he'd only be made king, if at all, by Jane and by the assent of Parliament. Jane immediately called for Arundel and Pembroke and she made it quite clear to them that Guildford would not be king. She would instead make him a duke at best. At some point then the mother-in-law got involved and tried to enforce her will on the 16-year-old, tried to insist Guildford should be king even telling her son to withdraw his sexual favours and go home to Sion. Lady Jane would not budge. Guildford, enthralled to his mum, desperate for recognition, said that he would go the following morning. It's a fascinating episode. She's 16. She's not been educated for politics. She's not streetwise. But Jane had the measure of the Duke and his family. If the throne must be hers, then it would be hers. It would not be the Dudleys. She would be no cipher. There was steel as well as intellect in Lady Jane Grey. Still, he must have been a little uncomfortable that evening of the 10th of July. A huge feast was set in Jane's honour, and as she sat surrounded by the richest and most powerful men and women in the realm, you have to wonder what she and Guildford talked about. Anyway, at least Jane could try to enjoy the supper at the end of a dramatic and exhausting day and look forward to a bit of bed. But at that point, a visitor was announced. It was an elderly man called Thomas Hungate, and he came with a letter. The letter was from the missing Princess Mary.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.